Well, babe, we did it. We wrote a book. Yeah, man, it's it's actually surreal to even think about uh, that we wrote a book, had a baby, got married, not necessarily in that order. <laughs> <laughs> but the book is now available yeah. for pre-order, and we're so excited to share it with you. Oh, so looking forward to getting this book into your hands, to be in dialogue and conversation with all of you as we continue to liberate love from old imprints and codependent dynamics that keep us small, stuck, and stagnant. Yeah, you know, no matter your relationship status, this book walks you through what shaped you, why do you do what you do in relationship. It dives deep into your relationship blueprint, attachment styles, and most importantly, which is different than every other book that's ever covered codependency in the past, we explore the role of the nervous system in that. And the book is called Liberated Love. Yeah. Release your codependent patterns and create the love you desire. Go to createthelove.com slash liberated love to order your copy now. That's createthelove.com slash liberated love and get that pre-order in and you'll be able to get a free download of a meditation we created and a workbook that goes along with it. Much love and appreciation for your support. Much love. Thank you. During the pandemic, I saw a huge shift in like the public discourse around this topic that people were really like, I am tired of people just telling me that I should smile and agree and get on with my life. And it became much more normal to talk about this phenomenon. Hi, I'm Mark Groves. I'm a human connection specialist and founder of Create the Love. At an early point in my life, I became obsessed with understanding relationships, the intricacies of how people connect. And through this exploration, I have created a life and a business dedicated to learning out loud and exploring how we interact with each other and the world. This podcast brings the world's top thought leaders, spiritual luminaries, physicians, scientists, researchers, best-selling authors, and health and wellness experts under one roof to discuss the good, the bad, the messy, and of course, the beautiful parts of the human experience. Welcome to the Mark Groves Podcast. I can't wait to dive in with you. I'm so excited to welcome Whitney Goodman. Hello. Hello. Thanks for having me. Well, I had to have you on here. One, because I've been following you for so damn long that it's like, okay, it's about time that we make this. We upgrade our digital relationship. We've almost made it into the 3D. So I consider this close. It's close. But now you give me an excuse to go to Florida. There you go. And the other reason I had to have you on is because I feel like you can solve our problem of the internet. That's no big task. <laughs> that we're just infected with toxic positivity or the illusion of positivity or, I mean, how would you even define toxic positivity? Toxic positivity is really the unrelenting pressure to be happy and positive all the time. Um, I, I like to define it relationally as when we offer someone a very simple solution for a complicated problem that we know nothing about. And I think that's a lot of what we see on the internet when it comes to that toxically positive advice. So some of that would be what, like, oh, just get on with it. Or yeah, like, what would it sound like? So a lot of like, just smile, just be happy. Um, don't worry about it. Or, you know, even in the realm of like talking about manifestation or curing things from this lens of like, if you just believe it, it will happen. Uh, a very, very simplistic approach. Yeah, I've tried that. It's like, if you just believe in a million dollars, you get it. I remember when The Secret came out, 
my brother, who I consider like the rudder of devil's advocate, you know, he, when I, I was talking to him about the secret, he's like, that's so dumb. It's like, what, you just imagine a red bike and you get a red bike? You don't have to do anything? That's dumb. And I'm like, yeah, it, actually, when you think about it that way, it's interesting that we consider just smiling or putting on a brave face. It feels like it's just uh, cultural gaslighting. Absolutely. I, I define it as sort of a gaslighting because we're telling people constantly that that problem that you think is big or so bad, it, it actually isn't. And there's this very simple solution for it. And it's like, you think people haven't tried that? already, you know, just smiling or just thinking positive. Like it's usually the first thing they try. I had a friend going through a divorce and I remember when they saw their therapist, their therapist was like, you need to have gratitude. Like you need to find gratitude and like create a gratitude journal. And she was like, I have no fucking interest in gratitude right now. Like I can't even access pretending. You know, it seems, I know in positive psychology, that was a criticism of the gratitude intervention, which as an intervention can actually really greatly reframe how we look at the world and move towards more optimism, et cetera, et cetera. But when it was a thing you had to do every morning, it became actually counterproductive because it still became a thing you had to do and it was contrived. Exactly. I actually think gratitude has really become like the toxic positivity of the internet lately. And I find that anecdotally as a therapist, what I was finding over the last several years is people were feeling a lot of shame about their inability to feel a true sense of gratitude from doing those lists every morning or even to get the list done. And to me, I'm like, then that's not a helpful intervention if it's making you feel guilt and shame and like a bad person because you can't do this thing that everyone's telling you to do. Yeah, that we then just keep perpetuating like, oh, the simple solution of wearing a brave face or whatever it is, it didn't work for you. So now you're again another failure. Where is this all sourced from? Like, what is this sort of history of toxic positivity? How did it not just leak into our culture, but almost like become a part of it? I think the lens that I threw, looked at this through was very like uniquely American and then it's continued to spread. You know, for Americans, it's like the right to the pursuit of happiness and we're obsessed with it. And you can see its origins in religion, that religion was very dark, doom and gloom. It kind of needed to rebrand. And so after Calvinism, they were like, all right, God wants you to be happy and healthy and rich. And we start to see all of this, really the original self-help, right, coming to be. Of There's a lot of God language in that original self-help. You know, like Norman Vincent Peale talking about God wants you to be positive and happy. And, and from there, I think it just spread into being tied into like capitalism and productivity. And now everything is about if you want to succeed in any area of life, you have to have a positive attitude. And that will be the solution. Interesting that it came from this lens of religion. I do see that transition in religion because, you know, even when you look at, for example, from a cultural lens of how Jesus was perceived, like the Jesus in Mexico is like a super suffering Jesus, you know, like bleeding and, and the one in Canada, maybe a little more like, you know, not suffering as much, not bleeding as much. I can see that rebrand that occurred. I did hear a friend's father recently say that the reason 
someone in their family was having mental health challenges was because they didn't love Jesus enough. And it's like, oh, that'll fix my life and environment that aren't doing great and et cetera, et cetera, you know? Exactly. We still see so much of that in religion though, right? When it comes to mental health, it's like, you just need to pray a little bit more. You need to believe a little bit harder. It's all these simple solutions that don't really have any compassion or attempt at understanding what the person is going through. What made you want to write this book then on toxic positivity? So I got on Instagram really just with the intention of promoting my private practice uh, back in like 2017, 2018. And that was when I became familiar with this realm of positivity on the internet that I had never seen before. And as a therapist, I was like, wow, this is terrible. Like I can see why this is making people feel bad. I was also working... um, in a lot of like oncology with people who had cancer, their family members. And I noticed there was such a push there that if you want your treatment to work, you got to be positive. If you want your relative to live, you have to be positive. And I saw how negative that was. So I created this post that was a chart that was like toxic positivity on one side and what would actually be helpful on the other. And that spread so wildly that that was actually how my Instagram grew And from there, I kept talking about it and then was like, I need to take this off Instagram. I can't talk about it as much as I want to in this space. And so you wrote the book. Yes. The book was born like, I think three years later after that post. You know, on the internet or social media more specifically, there's almost like a celebration of the good life. So it's not so much, let's say, the presentation of problems and people giving those very simple solutions, which of course occurs, because you see that in the comments for sure. But actually just that there is an absence, I think, like an absence of realness. And so does that perpetuate that same level of toxic positivity? A thousand percent. I think the history, when we look at Instagram and how it was, it was this very curated view of our life, right? Or social media in general, trying to only show the good parts that I noticed with my own clients, there was a lot of dialogue that we were having about like what other people's lives looked like and that they must be happy all the time. Things must be good. And I think it was causing people again to feel that sense of shame of like, why can't I be like them? And it's not real. It's, it's totally fabricated, right? Well, yeah, a lot of people have film crews walking around with them. You know, I think of like my professional images that I have for, you know, bios or whatever it is. They're very different than the guy who wakes up and works out, walks around town, mainly in athleisure. You know, like I wear a collared shirt every once in a while. One of the very few occasions is my business or my like headshots, you know, but some people's whole feeds, and that's no offense or criticism to it, but some people's whole feeds are headshots. Some people's whole feeds are professional pictures. And if that's your job, obviously amazing. But I do think that it also can have us trapped within our own feeds, that there's not space for us to be the imperfect human, real, you know, real version of ourselves. For sure. It's, it's also those like parasocial relationships, right? Where you feel like you just know everything about someone that you've never met. And I know I'm somebody that spends a lot of time on social media for my job, but I don't really share anything about my life there. You know, other than like, oh, I had anxiety on this day or something like that. But someone might feel like they really know me just from 
viewing all that stuff. And then you kind of make an assessment based on 1% of someone's life. Based on the time of year and what's going on in the world, I am all about making sure that my immune system is operating at its best. I want to make sure that it is in tip-top shape so that whatever it might meet, it is able to fight off. And so one of the ways I do that is I use Organifi Immunity. It's 100% organic. It's got 500% of your recommended daily dose of vitamin C. And that vitamin C is sourced from organic cherries. It contains the immune-boosting power of ginger, turmeric, and also zinc. It is gluten-free, dairy-free, soy-free, vegan, all of those things. And as I said, 100% organic. And it also has a vegan source of D3 from lichen moss. And that provides 1,000 international units of vitamin C, which is 188% of our daily recommended dose. Vitamin D is so important to modulate innate and adaptive immunity. So if you're interested in giving your immune system a boost and a little bit of extra oomph in order to fight off what might come towards you this season, check out Organifi.com slash create the love. You get 20% off anything you order from there. They have such incredible products. I love them as a brand. I love them as a culture. I love them as a company. Go check them out now. Yeah, and then have all these assumptions. And if we're in living in the world of comparisonitis, which most of us do live in that world or oscillate around that world we're going to do that with the people we admire, with the people we follow, with, I think about how much anxiety has been sourced just from not having the body that social media promotes or the car or the whatever it is, you know, it's, we're a strange species. So how do we move or even recognize that we're in it and then move towards like, what would realness look like? I think always reminding yourself that like, I don't share all my life on the internet or what I'm doing with everybody. So this person probably isn't either. And there's pieces of their life that I don't know about. So I can't make an accurate comparison. For me also, it was like really learning that I'm in charge of who I follow and I can mute people. I can take them away. I don't have to like flood my page with all these people that just make me feel bad all the time. You know, I'm not inviting them into my home every day. And so that's been huge for me is just to be like, oh, I don't really want to see this girl in like a bathing suit on my page every day when I'm like eight months pregnant or something. It's not not in line with what I need right now. <laughs> well, the idea that we curate where that attention goes and even curate what some an emotion that something evokes within us. I mean, that level, I don't know that we started off with that level of discernment, you know, in general. You know, it's almost like social media has amplified the lack of boundaries around what we allow in our lives. What do you think about that? Yeah. And and to some degree, it's like there's all these algorithms and things, you know, we're getting pushed content all the time, whether we want it in our orbit or not. But there's, I think as consumers, we definitely have to come back to like, I have the power. I downloaded this on my phone and I get to choose what I want to look at and not look at. And I think the discerning of like, what does it feel like when I view this content is powerful because I follow people that I don't totally maybe agree with on everything, but I'm learning from them instead of feeling a sense of shame about who I am as a person. And I think that's really different. Yeah. Different to follow someone who challenges the way we think versus challenges, let's say our self-worth. Exactly. Exactly. 
Did you get pushback on this conversation, this conversation about toxic positivity, this calling out this way of being or, or what you're seeing as a movement? Yeah. When I first started talking about it, I would get like, so many comments of like, this is the stupidest thing I've ever heard. Positivity can't be toxic. Like you've lost your mind, whatever. And then actually it seemed like during the pandemic, I saw a huge shift in like the public discourse around this topic that people were really like, I am tired of people just telling me that I should smile and agree and get on with my life. And it became much more uh, normal to talk about this phenomenon that by the time the book came out, I felt like people were much more receptive to the idea than when I had originally started the conversation just a couple of years prior. Three years since the birth of the graph to the birth of the book. So a cultural shift. And in those three years, is the timing of that essentially the pandemic? Pretty much. Yeah. I think it was like between 2018 to like the end of 2021. Yeah, I could see that shift happen culturally as you bring it up because, you know, at some point we're going through a collective trauma. And I can say that if someone said just smile and everything's going to be okay, it's like the world feels like it's falling apart. Like societally, culturally, politically, everything feels like it's imploding. If someone tells me to wear a brave face, I'm just like, get effed. Right. But people were doing that, right? Like we had celebrities like singing in their living rooms being like, we're all in this together. And it's like, we're really not though. Like I'm seeing where you are and where I am and they're different. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. How's the you Hollywood know? Hills? Right. And so I think that was when people started to be like, no, let's talk about how bad this is. For some people, it's much worse. And like, let's be honest and actually come up with a solution. Yeah. The all we're all in this together didn't feel always like that. And it's, you know, I think being able to call out the realness of life, the realness of circumstances, at least allows us to face it, you know? You know, toxic positivity is in the research I remember from the Gottmans where they study newlyweds and then for six years follow them and listen to their conversations, etc. I remember when they go through the data that successful couples, the ones who didn't divorce after six years, have five above five to one positive interactions for every one negative. One thing I remember is that if the positivity got to like 13 to one, it actually had a opposite effect because it wasn't grounded, like it was sort of Pollyanna. It's like when someone's overtly positive, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, I feel like I can't, they're not real. Like I can't connect to who they really are. It's, it's like, every, there's, it's like they have such a fear of emotion other than joy or positivity that they don't have the ability to hold space for mine. Absolutely. And I think that's where toxic positivity becomes so toxic for lack of a better word, is that it inhibits any connection, right? So if I feel like you cannot support me, you can't hold space for me, you're probably going to deny my experience with your positivity or tell me it's going to be fine, then I'm not going to go to you anymore, or I'm going to have a very surface level relationship with you. And that's, I think, what you're saying it feels like, you know, with these types of people. So it's basically demonstrating a limit in their own capacity for, I don't know, what we would call maybe more challenging feelings? Yeah, just to be vulnerable, to hold space like for emotional depth. I think for a lot of people, they grew up in homes where no other emotions were allowed. Um, they weren't taught how to express them, or maybe they were even punished or shamed for sharing emotions other 
than those like safe, happy ones. And so they just have no experience in that realm. So how do we handle like, let's say a family member or a friend or, I mean, a stranger, you probably just block them, but some, <laughs> you can't do that. Necessarily. Well, you can do that with your mom, but there is a point maybe where that comes, but how do we navigate that with, with someone? If you have someone in your life that's always like that, I think the first thing you can do is model that it is okay and safe and allowed to talk about those things by doing it yourself, asking them questions about that and even calling it out. Like sometimes I'll say to people who will be like, oh, everything's fine. Or like, I don't care. I'll be like, you know, you can complain about it. Like, it's fine. If it were me, I would be like, oh, that sucks. And almost like making a joke of it or calling it out can kind of open up the door for people to say like, oh, okay, I guess I can be real about my experience. Based on the time of year and what's going on in the world, I am all about making sure that my immune system is operating at its best. I want to make sure that it is in tip-top shape so that whatever it might meet, it is able to fight off. And so one of the ways I do that is I use Organifi Immunity. It's 100% organic. It's got 500% of your recommended daily dose of vitamin C. And that vitamin C is sourced from organic cherries. It contains the immune-boosting power of ginger, turmeric, and also zinc. It is gluten-free, dairy-free, soy-free, vegan, all of those things. And as I said, 100% organic. And it also has a vegan source of D3 from lichen moss. And that provides 1,000 international units of vitamin C, which is 188% of our daily recommended dose. Vitamin D is so important to modulate innate and adaptive immunity. So if you're interested in giving your immune system a boost and a little bit of extra oomph in order to fight off what might come towards you this season, check out Organifi.com slash create the love. You get 20% off anything you order from there. They have such incredible products. I love them as a brand. I love them as a culture. I love them as a company. Go check them out now. Yeah, like when someone says something, this, no, it's fine. And you're like, it's not. Yeah. It's okay that it's not. Exactly. Actually, it's a fucking shit show. So, like, (laughs) let's just, can we all just get real with that? I wonder when I think about how social media is engaged with and how algorithms work. You do see a virality, though, to people sharing something they're going through. You do see a virality to like a real where someone's getting, for sake of a better term, real about how they feel. When I think about how the algorithm's shifting, just based on what I'm seeing on Instagram, and I'm, I imagine you're seeing something similar in the last six, seven months, I'd say it's taken a pretty radical change. It seems to be that instead of getting fed content from people we follow, we're getting fed content that is like dancey videos, inspirational videos, and all that stuff's fine. But it's not necessarily content we are choosing anymore. It's being chosen for us. And I think that becomes a very slippery slope, you know, because I feel like our attention is either garnered or monetized when it's, we're enraged or maybe inspired. I don't, I don't know if that's the right word. What do you think? It's interesting you bring that up because I have noticed that I keep getting fed content that enrages me and I almost have to be like, don't watch this because you're just going to keep getting more of it, but it does, it will make me angry. And so I do engage with it. And then I'm thinking about it and I'm like, I didn't even go looking for that. I didn't want to see it, (laughs) but somehow it ended up in front of my eyes and it's, it's terrible. 
I noticed that I'm getting a lot of things in my feed that are not from people I follow. And, you know, I'll watch like a mountain biking video. I love mountain biking. And then all of a sudden I've got people doing crazy shit on mountain bikes, you know. And it's true. There's a part of my brain that's like, whoa, this is, I would imagine like the amount of dopamine that must get released. You know, I remember reading this thing about how phones access a similar part of the receptor of, of dopamine that or stimulate a similar amount, sorry, of dopamine that when we were out foraging and we found berries, like we get the same stimulus when we find information. Interesting. Yeah. I thought that, I forget what the book's called. It's something about rewiring your brain, but it's almost like if you looked at a brain of someone today versus a brain of someone 20 years ago, I would imagine they look quite different. Yeah. You know, I think that our brains are still the same in some ways though. Like we're getting activated by information that's being presented in front of us, whether we know that it's real or fake. Um, it's, it's causing this type of reaction that I can see something online that makes me upset and, and feel it almost as if it's happening right in front of me, whether it's like a skit or a real thing. And I think that's why this media has so much power over us sometimes that if I see something before I'm going to go to bed that makes me upset, I'm like, wow, that just ruined like my sleep. Like Now I got to f- climb back up the mountain to get out of that. Do you think cancel culture is on some level an extension of toxic positivity? You know, I haven't thought, I don't know that I'm ready to speak on that connection yet. I, I think that Maybe in some ways it's similar in like that it's a simple solution for a very complicated problem. And people are like, if I just get rid of this person, it will make the issue better. And I think we're finding, of course, that that's not necessarily true. Um, but it gives people that same release maybe of I'm fixing this problem. I'm coming up with a solution. I'm doing something about it in the same way that someone might say to a chronically ill person, like, have you tried yoga? You know, it makes you feel useful and empowered in some way. Yeah, I was just thinking about it as you were speaking, because I, I think of a line that I love about handling accountability, which I think is important. And I think the shifting of systems and the shifting of what's tolerable for language, all that kind of stuff, it requires correction and everything I think in historically usually gets overcorrected. But I think of the line, you can have accountability without annihilation. And I think we haven't necessarily been modeled that recently. When I consider some of the subjects that are the most sensitive to dialogue about, and, you know, I think those are cultural movements. So things like Me Too, I think things like Black Lives Matter, things like trans movement, that even in having those conversations, there's a level of like a lack of safety to dialogue often, not always. There's obviously spaces and people who can provide that. But it's interesting that there seems to be an inability to, like that the conversation or dialogue about something is the rejection of that thing. That seems to be a bit of a model of how we've been orienting around, as you said, some of the most complex issues that perhaps it's easier if I just say, we're not even talking about this, stay positive or, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, it's very complex to just simply say it's this binary, so I don't mean to simplify it. No, I, I think that I was met with some of that some criticism like that when I would talk about positivity being toxic, that people would sort of come back with this rhetoric of like, gosh, I can't say anything anymore. If I can't even be positive, like almost like it was censorship in a way. And the way that I respond to that always is like, 
you can literally say whatever you want, like, you know, free speech, whatever. But when you want to be in a relationship with someone and you want it to go well, you might want to learn how to support them best. And that's going to look different in every relationship. And I'm just offering, you know, one way that I've learned doesn't really work that great. And if you want to keep telling everybody just to be positive, go for it. They just might not come to you anymore for help, you know, and that's fine. (laughs) Yeah. You don't get witnessed in that experience. You know, like there's a lack of witnessing, there's a lack of seeing, hearing, and, you know, speaking of relationship, you know, you were saying originally that at the beginning that a lot of the pathology of this is coming from homes that didn't allow for discourse, that didn't allow for maybe sad emotions or angry emotions. Am I, am I getting that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. When I think about romantic relationships, because we're talking about how we handle, let's say, someone's diagnosis or something like that. How does this show up in romantic relationships? So the biggest pattern I see when I've worked with couples in the past is sort of this idea that one partner wants to be heard and listened to and validated and the other just wants to fix when that comes up, right? And so it might, toxic positivity can show up in this way of like someone coming home and saying, I had a really bad day at work. I feel like my boss is listening to me and it's just like, oh, it'll be better tomorrow. Don't worry about it. Um, or have you tried like just talking to them about it? And really like what I want people to understand is what happens there is it cuts the conversation off, right? At that point you're saying, okay, this person doesn't want to hear more about this. They don't want to try to understand me. And my complaint is kind of, it was able to be solved in one second. The opposite approach there would be when your spouse starts complaining about work, asking like, okay, what's been going on? Like, why do you not feel heard by your boss? What have you tried? And really trying to just understand them is so much more powerful than doing that fixing. Actually seeking to ask the question. I do look back on the Rolodex of my life when someone would have brought a problem to me before I had an understanding of how to listen, of how to dialogue. I would have said something like, well, why don't you just do this? Or da, 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 here's a solution. Oh, for sure. I... I wrote a book on this and I still do that. <laughs> like <laughs> it is it is a reflex because when you see someone that you love struggling, I think you you want to fix it for them. We also are so much easier able to see other people's like problems and solutions to those problems than our own. You know, like what we're saying might be right and true, but if they're not ready to hear it, it doesn't matter. I remember my father saying to me when I was like 26 or something. And I I was like, dad, why didn't you tell me this? Like when I was 17, (laughs) he was like, well, you know, when your partner brings a challenge to you, you should ask them, do they want advice or just to listen? And I was like, that's so helpful. I've been spending my whole years as a male trying to fix it. Your dad was way ahead of the curve, man. (laughs) I know, but that would have been so helpful. I remember talking to my partner at the time, and being like, do you want me to listen or 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 help you with that? And she was like, what? <laughs> I, I mean, I, I want you to listen. And I was like, all right, okay, go ahead. And I was like, man, this is way easier when you allow someone to adult for themselves and ask for the support they need. And you stop being a child yourself by trying to freaking problem solve, which was what I was doing. Absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's a hard dynamic to break. 
Yeah. Yeah. It requires like trusting that you're an adult. It requires self-regulation and then co-regulation, which I think those are incredibly, like you said, the block to that intimacy, to that vulnerability is to shut things down before they get. It's almost like a lack of capacity presenting as altruism. A thousand percent. Yeah, that's a great way of saying it. Which, man, I th- when it's dressed up like that, it's a lot better than dressed up as like uh, overt gaslighting. You know, it's like secret gaslighting. It's like sneaky. Yeah, and that's that's something I think we always have to like add as a disclaimer to this is people are not usually doing this because they like want to gaslight and be evil. They're doing it to be helpful or to protect themselves, you know, subconsciously from some level of pain. Like I think sitting with people who are in pain is difficult. I do that as a job. And there are still some days where I'm like, that was really hard to like not get pulled in with that. So I I understand, especially if it's an intimate relationship, how hard that is. Yeah. I think we often try to save people from feeling feelings we don't know the value of. Yes. Or that we don't like ourselves or are comfortable with. Yeah. Like when I experienced a breakup that then transformed me and liberated me and was just, uh, I mean, all my times that I've been through a breakup have been in hindsight, some of the most expansive moments of my life. When someone now comes to me with grief or something from that space, I don't try to save them from it because I know the potency of the gift, you know, and you're like, my hand's here to help you walk through it, but this is important to walk through. Yeah, that's that's powerful because I think a lot of people, myself included, struggle with watching someone go through an experience like that because you get this sense of like, what if they don't come out the other side? What if they're not okay? What if they get stuck in it? And I think that fear is what con- we're constantly throwing life rafts of like, I got to get you out of this instead of letting someone just move through it. Yeah, I remember Russell Brand talking about addiction and the 12 steps and you know he has his own book on that and he was saying that when you try to save people from the bottom you you are dragged along it. And I thought, "Oh man, that's such a great yeah, like you end up there basically the whole time like insulating them from the impact that's required to wake them up." And it's almost like we're saving other people, which I guess is and insourcing our own identity from having awakenings or whatever the word we might want to use. For sure. And, and codependency and all of those like, you know, buzzwords that we use can definitely develop within that dynamic. Yeah. It's interesting to think that so many of the jobs that are about support are actually the monetization of codependency, you know, like you think of like, nursing, healthcare, psychotherapy, coaching, dietetics, nutrition, you know, like all these roles that can be sneaky ways that we're sourcing for codependency. But also when we're liberated, because there are hyper skill sets, right? Like you you develop these skill sets because you're so good at monitoring the world and people's feelings and being able to draw schemas and walk people through things. And so they become superpowers when they're harnessed. And so I, I, again, I'm, I'm really basically talking about myself in, in the walking towards wanting to help people. No, it's true though. And I, I think if you're somebody that's in that space, you have to be very in touch with why you're doing that and what you're getting out of it. And also when to draw a line, you know, I, I tell my own clients, like the point is for you to be able to go and live your life without me. You know, that's what this space is for, not for us to be 
so attached that you need me for everything. Yeah, like the relationship with you that creates secure attachment then gives them the confidence to, you know, on some level, leave the nest, maybe for sake of a better term. In your growth on Instagram, because you said that this graph that you created, you went on there to expand your clinical practice, and then this graph you created caught some virality. What have you noticed in the time on Instagram as a therapist, just some of um, on top of the toxic positivity, what are some of the other things that you've really witnessed in terms of some of the greatest challenges that people have that they come to you toward with? Yeah, I've been writing a lot about and working with a lot of people who are struggling with their relationship with their parents, especially young adults. I think we're seeing such a big cultural divide, difference in values, uh, goals between young adults now and their parents, that older generation, that that's been some of the content that has been the most explosive for me lately and, and just a really interesting thing to talk about. Why do you think there's such a challenge in that space right now? And, and do you think it's more amplified than previous generations? Young adults today are part of more of this like therapy generation to some degree. They're equipped with the language of, you know, and I'm a millennial, I'm part of that myself of this feeling of like, I have the language of boundaries of telling my parents, like, you can't speak to me that way. And that's new, especially in, in certain cultures, you know, I, I, my mom is Hispanic and that is not how you act in a family like that. And so I think there's really this this clashing of like, what are you doing? Like telling me these things and the parents being like, family is everything. You're supposed to honor me no matter what. And it's, it's difficult. You're also seeing a lot of young adults that moved back in with their parents during the pandemic as adults may have been living on their own before. And it's just, it's a lot of clashing. Yeah. I think going back to the home, that's like having to deal with source code. You're actually assessing the programming of the matrix in that point. And you're getting red pilled just by sitting at home. You know, I remember I had to move home in my late 20s after going through a breakup. And my mom in the morning woke me up for work. And I was like, I'm good. Like, why are you waking me up for work? And I was like, have I ever been late for work? And she's like, I don't know. And I'm like, exactly. Like, but the personal growth, I, I love that you're bringing forward the sort of clash of culture that occurs when my mom's an immigrant. So like when an immigrant moves to a place and then the place has this melting pot of culture that's different, different values, different ideologies, like boundaries. Could you imagine boundaries in like an Italian home or like, yeah, like you're saying, saying to your Italian mom, like, don't speak to me that way. I feel like a shoe is on its way after that. Right, exactly. And so you have to imagine like you've got this this whole generation that's online listening to people being like, you can set boundaries with your parents and your parents shouldn't talk to you about this. And I'm I'm part of that. I'm sharing that knowledge with people. And it's confusing for the parents. I think they're like, whoa, I wasn't I wasn't prepared to have this dynamic. With my adult child, I thought we were kind of done and coasting here till the end. Well, I think for a lot of parents too it might be the thought that I wasn't entitled to these things. Why should you like, this is this new language you're bringing. And, you know, I also find that a lot of the times when I'm observed this or lived it, 
is that I noticed my parents initially when we had these conversations that there was shame about like processing that I didn't appreciate, you know, that something hurt me or that something could have been done differently, that there wasn't a love and acceptance for how it actually went. Like I'm giving an, it's a both and, and I don't know that they knew how to live in that, in that both end. You know, if I'm criticizing them, then I don't love them. And that wasn't true. Yeah. A lot of parents will kind of respond back with that. Like, but I did everything for you. You know, you're unappreciative. You don't know how hard it was. And it's like, we're just bringing up one thing. Doesn't mean that the whole thing was bad. And and like having that dialogue. And that's something I'm really hoping I can help, you know, more people engage in because I think it helps parents and their kids have better relationships in the end. Do you think that's best done under the care of a mediator, like a therapist or a coach? I think it depends on the dynamic, you know, between the parents. There, There's also some parents out there who, you know, maybe are high in narcissistic traits. They don't have uh, the ability to hold like the perception of someone else to understand that. And that might be a case where it's like, how can we get you to just accept who your parents are for who they are and how you want to live? There's other people who are going to be much more open to having that dialogue, whether it's with a therapist or their kid. Yeah, that starting to bring dialogue and discourse and conversation, especially around emotionality. Like, do you notice a difference in this challenge with based on the gender of the parent, too? Like, I would imagine us as men, we're not quite as emotionally adept, especially in older generations, which is no fault of theirs. It was socialized out of them. For sure. I mean, I I see that in my own parents, you know, in in every parent I talk to that men were socialized to be stoic. There was also not this expectation that men would be involved in the emotional life of their children. You know, I see how my husband is becoming a father compared to the older generation the expectations in in my age group are like the dad is involved. Like this is a 50-50 thing. And it wasn't like that when I was growing up. Yeah, it definitely wasn't when I was growing up too. And the cultural messages were different. You know, I think we're trying to pick apart what are gender roles? What can we choose rather than be, I guess, inherit? And also there are also being a mixed messaging, for example, for a woman, you know, raise your family and get a job, crush it, become a CEO. And if you want to be a mom, you should feel guilty that you don't want to be a CEO. And if you want to be a CEO, you should feel guilty that you don't want to be a mom. And, you know, those messages perpetuate on the other side for the masculine. And that seems to be something like I, I would imagine it's always been hard for young people in contrast as they begin to know as much as their parents, right? As they begin to meet their parent eye to eye. Also, I don't know that a young like this is basically the first few generations that only know life with smartphones and technology. And as much as I think new neural pathways and ways of being will continue to evolve from that, I do think that there's a yearning to be less technical or technological. Oh, for sure. I mean, I I think the experience of becoming a parent when you have the internet is and a smartphone is something that parents who didn't have that cannot understand because it's like you're just constantly getting bombarded with information about how you should and shouldn't be doing things instead of just like talking to your pediatrician once in a while and maybe like the few moms that you know it's very different and i am definitely 
I want to be less technical. I do too. I never thought I'd get there. Like, you know, I never thought that there'd be a moment where I think, you know what, life without a smartphone is probably pretty incredible. And I have a friend who got like their account got hacked and they didn't have an account for a week and they couldn't do anything about it, you know, because Instagram doesn't have a thing called customer service. And so they eventually got back in, but he told me that in his week off, he read a book. He hadn't done that in a while. He, and he said it was so liberating that in his return, he doesn't really want to have it anymore. Like he wants to change. And he's like, it's the greatest gift. Like I thought my world was falling apart. And then all of a sudden I discovered that I wasn't even in my world in some way. Makes sense. I mean, now that I use it for work, I don't use it personally, like at all. Social media really is just work for me at this point. Yeah. For young people today, you were saying about parenting where information was sort of stored in the pediatrician, right? On parenting or stored in, let's say our religious circles or a cultural or familial, whatever they are, which that can be good, but that can also be really bad because <laughs> that was also how sleep training was taught. You know, kids are resilient. They can cry it out. We've said kids are resilient the last couple of years a few times, and that hasn't worked out. You know, when we look back at the data, just at learning loss, all that kind of stuff. And I think now, at least with the internet, there is this shared level of knowledge, but you're right. There is an idea that what one person does is the right way, but you can look at cultures around the world. They raise children differently and they all turn out you know, relatively similar and healthy and expanded. I don't know that technology has made that better though. I know. I, you know, I think in small doses, it's great, but when you're consuming too much conflicting content all day long, I, I don't know that our brains have the ability to really make sense of that in real time and, and integrate all of it. I certainly feel like I don't. What's the answer outwit? Just less time on there. <laughs> like... <laughs> censor it a little bit for yourself. Are these all the practices? Because that sounds like the discernment, the getting grounded in self, the ability to feel all the feelings. Like when we're moving away from toxic positivity, what are we moving towards? Like, is there a term? Is there a, a way of being that is that? I am a big fan of living in alignment with your values, which is something that will of course change throughout your life and really checking back in with like, why am I doing this? Why is this important to me? What am I getting from this? And I think when we go back to that, it's very easy to discern what we're consuming and why and, and putting ourselves in the driver's seat of that. So stepping into that discernment, choosing what we want, choosing how we want to be, choosing what life we want to live. If our families have never really oriented around depth or communication, that. I would imagine in a state of toxic, in an environment of toxic positivity is indicating that it's something we crave or value or want to create. Yeah, it absolutely can. And, and that can be something that you decide, you know what, I'm not going to live that way. That's a new pathway that I want to create for my future family, my friendships, my relationships. And if your family decides not to join you on that, that's okay. That's got to be one of the most challenging parts of the journey is to be like, okay, I love you. Bye. Yeah. But it can be, I love you. I accept you for what you want to do with your life. And I'm going to make different choices. And I hope that we can peacefully coexist and have a relationship around the things that we do share. Yeah. I always wonder on a logical level how it makes sense to us that when we say to someone, 
I want to co-create a relationship that's based on these values that orients around respect and kindness. If someone doesn't want to accept that, we're not losing. You know, on a logical level, we're not losing. Like the, it's ironic that the most loving thing to do which we can understand again intellectually is to express that, commit to that. And if someone doesn't want to do that, we're not left abandoned because we sort of held ourselves, you know, in that moment. Right. And thinking about what would I really be getting from that relationship if I can't get respect, kindness, compassion, you know, you can't really have anything after that then. Yeah. Amen to that. Well, to a life of uh, total emotional immersion. (laughs) Yes. Wit, thanks so much for your time. I'm curious for the people listening, where can they get the book? Where can they find more of you? All that stuff. Yes, you can get Toxic Positivity anywhere books are sold. You can find me on Instagram, TikTok, all those places at Sit With Wit. And my website is sitwithwit.com, which has links to everything you possibly need. Perfect. We'll make sure we link that on the show notes. Thanks again. I appreciate your time. Thank you. Thanks so much for tuning in to today's episode. If this episode resonated with you, one of the best ways to support the show is to go subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss any more. Leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to it, or share the episode with your community on Instagram or whatever social place you like to hang out. This helps get it into more people's ears, and I'm so grateful for your support, always. Thanks again for tuning in. Much love. 